like Scott said, we've come to the end of our series through the Gospel of Luke this morning. But before we dive into this text, this last text we're going to look at, I, I want to say a brief word about the way in which I approached uh, this study and maybe a little bit of the method in my madness, if you will. Because there are a number of convictions that I have come to abide by when it comes to preaching a text of Scripture that I think will help sort of lay bare for you the reason why I approached it the way in which I did. And the first one is simply this. You cannot understand a given text of the Bible without understanding its context. You know, there stories and instructions and, and even poetry in the Bible are not placed there in some haphazard random way. Rather, you have these very thoughtful people who are writing sometimes thousands of years apart who wanted to sort of tie together the hopes of God's people as they are realized in Jesus. But what I found is, is that the surest way to ensure that you're going to misread a text is to isolate that text from the larger argument and the larger story of that, uh, of that author's uh, book. And so I spend a lot of time trying to locate where we are with a certain text in a book. It's interesting. I actually find that this is one of the reasons why it's so hard to read through the Bible. You're like, let's just get together and just read through the Bible. A lot of times I'll get to passages where I'm like, you know, I'm reading words, but I have no idea what this is about. Well, that's the reason why a sermon is supposed to place you within the larger understanding of the Bible's, of that book's intent. And so that's the first sort of conviction I live by. The second idea when it comes to preaching that I live by is that a sermon is formed on the basis of a question that you pose to the text. I don't know if you've ever heard, but it's often the case, it's certainly been true for me, that, so that pastors will preach uh, different sermons on the same text of the Bible. Well, how do you account for that? Well, I would simply say that a sermon is nothing more than the yield that you get when you pose a certain question to the text. Uh, in, in a former life, I, I worked with campus ministers to uh, sort of work them through the early pastoral struggles they had, and I would often talk to them about connecting their preaching to their audience and how difficult that oftentimes was. Because what I realized was it's very rare that sometimes certain early preachers even are aware of the fact that they're bringing a text, a question to the text. And so what ends up happening is, is because seminary provided you with these volumes of Bible commentators, that oftentimes they begin to take sort of passages from the Bible commentators, stretch them together, and call that preaching the text. But my argument is actually that if you spend all of your time answering questions from the text that the commentators led you to, the commentators are entertaining questions from academics. <laughs> or the way I used to put it to my campus ministers was, you, you may be standing up answering a whole lot of questions that no one in your audience is actually asking, which means it's hard to connect. Now look, before you go traipsing off on this, I don't think that every single question you ask a text of Scripture is equally valid. It needs to be warranted by the author's purpose. And I felt it was fortunate that Luke gave us that right from the start. <laughs> Everything he was writing was to help Theophilus, from chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, be convinced of the stories that he was hearing about Jesus, that they were true. And so every story he recorded was to bring another compelling feature about Jesus' nature to him. Hence, our series this year. My final conviction is this, is that every text is ultimately about Jesus. 
The Bible is a unified story that leads to Jesus. And therefore, if we fail to see how each text leads to Christ, I think we've not done the passage justice in any given sermon. And of course, my dream is that having been given the sort of big picture over any given text, that you would take that information and dive into it for yourself in your own study, or maybe in one of the numerous small groups that we offer here, and mine the treasures of finding Christ there. Well, it turns out that this morning we have just such a text that is as clear as a text we have in the Bible for how this is true. And so as we unpack this here at the end of this gospel, I want you to see three things. I want you to see the confused disciples, the powerful Bible study, and then the compelling Christ at the very end. The confused disciples, first of all. Okay, so it begins with this meeting that Jesus has with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Uh, We actually don't know the location of ancient Emmaus uh, today, but we do know that it was, what, seven miles away from Jerusalem. And you have someone named Cleopas and his companion. Could be his wife, could be a friend, who knows. But he's in quite an emotional state. Both of them are. Uh, Verse 17 says they're heavy with sorrow. Verse 21 talks about how disappointed they are. You know, how much they had hoped that Jesus would be the one. Uh, Verses 23 to 24 talk about how they are bewildered with the news of the resurrection. Talking about how the women among us have amazed us. And so my guess is, is this state of confusion that they find themselves in, Luke would like for us to find ourselves in. In other words, he's assuming that we will see the world through these people's eyes. But, you know, without a better way to say it, it's a little bit like their confusion is, is confusing <laughs> when you really look at it. Because here's what I mean. Cleopas and his friend, they actually have everything right. They've got tons of detail about what's actually happened. Uh, again, my favorite commentator, Michael Wilcock on Luke, says, for all of us, we should consider the gospel according to Cleopas. <laughs> he says, you have the ministry of Jesus in word and deed, the crucifixion which completed it, and the hope of redemption that filled it with meaning. There's the conquered grave, and there's the apostolic witness to it. There's everything. Everything except a personal word from the living Christ, which would in turn make the facts live also. (laughs) Hold that thought. Look, I think you've heard me say this year that the gospel is not good advice. We want the Bible to be that. We want it simply to be good things that it tells us about instructions on how to live. But it's not good advice. It's good news. And these great facts of the gospel are central historical information that constitute the spine of Jesus' message. It's all right here. And Cleopas got it right. But what is the thing that they lack? They've got all the information, but there's something missing. What is it? N.T. Wright says this, speaking of quoting from commentators, They had been seeing it as the long story of how God would redeem Israel from suffering, but it was instead the story of how God would redeem Israel through suffering. Through, in particular, the suffering which would be taken on himself by Israel's representative, the Messiah. That's the difference. This is a huge point that we need to consider this really carefully. It is possible to have all the facts It's possible to dive yourself into the minutia of Jesus' life and even be correct and accurate. It's possible to sort of exegete the syntax of any given passage and sort of do a bunch of word studies galore. It's possible to be a great student of the teaching of the Bible 
and yet still miss the larger point of what Jesus is doing in the big picture. In other words, the facts of the gospel are just facts as long as they are disconnected from the larger storyline of the whole Bible. This is the reason why I'm sort of adamant about preaching context of the passage without just considering the details. Again, from right. But the fact that these men couldn't recognize Jesus at first it seems to have gone with the fact that they couldn't recognize the events that just happened as the story of God's redemption. Perhaps Luke is saying that we can only now know Jesus, can only recognize him in any sense, when we learn to see him within the true story of God and of Israel and of the world. It's the big picture. In other words, you have to come to see what Jesus did in his life, death, and resurrection in the context of where God has been taking the whole Bible throughout human history before any of these truths sort of come home to you, before they transform you. And and Jesus' rebuke in verse 25, I think, is the key. Look what he says. He says, your problem is that you haven't listened to the prophets and seen how things must happen this way, that everything of what I've been doing in my life was necessary It had to happen this way. And so Jesus comes to set out to explain it to them. More on that on the next point. But for now, just notice the reaction that Cleopas and his companion have to Jesus' most incredible Bible study that he did. Look at verse 32. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? Man, that's a great image right there. The idea of burning if you think about it, burning can serve two functions. On the one hand, burning, you could realize, was, is an idea of, of pain and discomfort. You know, flame, when it's doing its work, sort of breaks things down. It sort of does its, its, its uh, breaking down work in it. But you know, flame can also mean warmth and comfort. You draw in close to the flame, it's what helps you stay warm. Well, look, I, I, I believe that Luke intends for us to relate to these disciples as much as we can. Because he knows that we feel just like them. How can I know if I've seen him like these two did? And the answer is because your heart will burn. On the one hand, you're going to feel an incredible amount of discomfort. Because there's no area of your life that he's not going to put his finger on. But on the other hand, you're going to feel a strange warmth that perhaps for the first time you saw what it meant for everything to terminate in him. It reminded me of the conversion story of John Wesley, the founder of modern Methodism, uh, when he said this in his journal. He said, in London on May 24th, 1738, in the evening I went very, very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. But before we move on, has that happened to you? (laughs) And if it hasn't, or if you're not sure whether it has, it might well be because of our next point. (laughs) Because we see the confused disciples, but it may be that you need to see the powerful Bible study, secondly. In other words, what is it that these disciples had at this point? Because they had their facts straight, but what was it that they missed about the big picture? Because they were reading the events around them, trying to understand their meaning, but they were still left cold 
and sad. This, this needs to be made explicit because there is a way of reading the Bible that will actually crush and depress you rather than bringing you life. Um, and, I, and to illustrate this, I want to, I want to use Mark Twain. You've got to be real careful about Mark Twain. Uh, Twain was uh, a very outspoken skeptic, hated biblical Christianity, and took great pains uh, often to mock the faith of his youth, uh, <laughs> which was Presbyterianism, no less. But Twain had been traumatized by experiences in his youth of death uh, that left him with these nightmares. There was once a town drunk by the name of Sam Smarr uh, who was shot in the streets of Hannibal and was actually placed in his home before the mortician could get there in preparation for burial. Well, someone for some reason had taken the family Bible and spread it out open over the dead man's chest. And Twain sort of reflected on this experience when he said this. He says, The shooting down of poor Smar in the main street at noonday supplied me with dreams. And in them I always saw again the grotesque closing picture. The great family Bible spread open the profane old man's breast by some thoughtful idiot. Adding the torture of its leaden weight to his dying struggles. We are curiously made. In all that throng of gaping and sympathetic onlookers, there was not one with the common sense enough to perceive that an anvil would have been in better taste than a Bible, less open to sarcastic criticism and swifter in its atrocious work. And in my nightmares, I gasped and I struggled for breath under the crush of that vast book for many a night. What's he talking about? He's talking about reading the Bible in such a way that is wrong, that curses you rather than blesses you. And how do you do that? Well, can I venture a suggestion? You read the Bible wrongly when you assume that it is first and foremost about you. Because if the Bible is you, it will crush you. But if the Bible is first and foremost about Jesus and about Him, then it will bring you life. Look at verse 27. He says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. N.T. Wright says, when Luke says that Jesus interpreted to them all things about himself throughout the Bible, he doesn't mean that Jesus collected a few or even a few dozen isolated texts, uh, verses chosen at random. But he means that the whole story from Genesis to Chronicles, which is the last book of the Hebrew Bible, pointed towards a fulfillment which could only be found when God's anointed took Israel's suffering and hence the world's suffering on to himself, died under its weight and rose again as the beginning of God's new creation, God's new people. In other words, what Wright is saying is is that the Bible is about Jesus and because it's about Jesus, it's not the crushing weight that Mark Twain thought that it was. And it really doesn't take that many examples to figure this out. Take, for instance, the famous story of David and Goliath. We look at a story like David and Goliath, and if you think that story is fundamentally about you, then it'll yield applications that sound something like this. You know what? David has gone and slayed the giant in his life. What are the giants in your life? Because, you know, with the five smooth stones of whatever, 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 and whatever... You can slay the giants in your life. And if you would but do that, then you will have a blessed life from here on after. Let us pray. Is that how that goes? But see, that's reading as if it's about you. But 
What if instead we looked and said, no, David is a type of Christ. He came to destroy the giants in my life. Jesus has destroyed the only giant that matters, which is sin and Satan, when he did what he did on the cross. And now that he's risen again, he invites his people into union with him. I don't slay the giants in my life. He slayed the giants in my life, and I am in him. That's the difference. That doesn't crush you. That actually frees you. And the funny thing is, is you can do it with every single story in the Bible. Tim Keller has a book on preaching where he gives this incredible outline. This is, this is a long list, but I think you'll see where it's going. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood that now cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing where he, would, where he went in order to create the new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who not just offer, was offered up by his father on the mountain, but was truly sacrificed to up for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God as taking his son up on the mountain and sacrificing him and say to him, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. David is the true and be- Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice that we deserve so that we, like Jacob, only receive the wounds of grace that wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses, who, when struck with the rod of God's justice, now gives water to us in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes its people's victory, even though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't just risk leaving an earthly palace, but left an ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain so that the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, and the true bread. In the end, it's not about you. But it's about Jesus. And what he said is, you know that the reason why you're despondent, the reason why you're upset, the reason why you're confused about your life, about yourself, about everything else, is because you're reading the Bible as if it's about you, but you don't know who the hero is. (laughs) You think you're the hero and you're not. It's about Jesus. We are just like these disciples. We thought the Messiah had come to to teach us, to give us a healthy pattern of a way of living. 
Jesus is saying, you think these stories are about you and that you're the hero. You've missed it. In other words, the Bible is not a collection of Aesop's fables, (laughs) morality tales. It's not a book of virtues. It's a story about how God saves us. And if we read it primarily, if it's about him, then we get the power to be like him. In other words, it's not a bunch of rules or a philosophy of life. The Bible is a gospel. It's an announcement of good news that is deeply and powerfully compelling because it terminates in Jesus. The confused disciples. The powerful Bible study. Don't you wish you could have sat in on that one? Which leads us to finish with the compelling Christ. Because that is a powerful thought. All of human history, all of the storylines of one's life finds its resolution in Jesus. There is nothing that you can worry about that doesn't ultimately trace itself back to the final completion that Jesus accomplished on the cross. And we live in the world when all that has been enacted and inaugurated. But where does it lead us? What does it lead us to? Very simply, it leads us to tell about it. Good news is not good unless it's been told. When was the last time that something great happened to you that you kept to yourself? You know, you landed the big account that gave you the windfall for that quarter. (laughs) Your baby took their first few steps. You know, your son just asked their girlfriend to marry him. (laughs) Um, You just aced your final exam. What's the first thing that you did when you heard about that? You called somebody. You told someone. You shared it. Why? Because you can't contain good news. Look, we have all kinds of discussion in our denomination about evangelism. I'm assuming all those are appropriate. But I've always contended that if I struggle with this idea of sharing my faith, it's not a problem of a lack of technique. It's kind of what we always want to talk about. Well, have you tried this method? Nor is it a problem, I think, of a bunch of willpower where you're like, oh, okay, uh, it's time for me to have this conversation. Okay, Give me strength to say it right. It's neither of those things. I actually think the problem with evangelism is almost always is that there's is with the goodness of my good news. <laughs> is there any good news in your gospel? What could I possibly find in Jesus that would make him interesting enough for my doubting neighbor? That would make him helpful enough to my hurting coworker? That, that would make him compelling enough for, for, my, for my rebellious teenager who won't even look me in the eye anymore. What might be compelling about the nature of Jesus? I have a dear friend, uh, my friend Harold, uh, who's been listening in on the podcast for this entire last two semester, who's actually drawn up a list from this series of the things that we found compelling in Jesus. Bear with me. He says, Jesus was the expected one promised by an ancient Hebrew prophecy who would come and fix what's wrong with the world. Jesus was a real person who was God incarnate. Jesus was God's son who makes those in union with him God's children by adoption. Jesus was baptized. And by his baptism, he gives the power to repent by fulfilling our obligations to a perfect life. Jesus had a history, a family tree, that showed that his credentials as a leader were not what you would think. Jesus was tempted, and through his resistance to temptation, he saved the world from bondage to Satan. Jesus performed actual miracles that weren't magic tricks, but came to show the nature of his kingdom. Jesus preached a new world order that was a reversal of this world's value systems. 
Jesus brings a new outlook on life by showing that the way up is down in his kingdom. Jesus surprises you with the message that the outsiders are the ones that get to come in. Jesus told stories that teach us to listen in ways that we couldn't before we met him. Jesus has power to calm the sea and to calm our hearts in the process. Jesus identified himself and didn't keep his true identity secret. Jesus demands radical service to enforce humility and expose evil and endorse grace. Jesus despised hypocrisy. He identified its mischief, critiqued it, and healed it. Jesus talked about money, explaining its power and the problem with it and the purpose of it. Jesus preached a narrow message that's compelling, not because it's not limited by hypocritical nonsense, nor even its scope, nor by procrastination and unrepentance. Jesus demanded total devotion from his followers because his gospel is just that great. Jesus went after lost things, and we were lost until he came to find us. Jesus exposed self-deception that keeps people from not finding Jesus compelling. Jesus explained that faith is about repenting and depending and gazing. Jesus warned about the future, telling us that all of our safe places will ultimately fail us. Jesus is the king that you've been waiting for. Jesus was resurrected from the dead, so we have to listen to him. Jesus explained his death over a simple ceremonial meal. Jesus was abandoned by hope and by his friends so that we would never have to be abandoned again. Jesus was the victim of supreme injustice so he could put an end to injustice forever. Jesus resolves all of our broken storylines at the cross. And finally this morning, Jesus is the culmination of all human history showing how it's all pointing to him. Philosopher Blaise Pascal must have been on his own Emmaus Road one night in 1654 when he wrote in his journal the word fire. (laughs) And beside those words, it just kept saying joy, joy, joy. And underneath it just scribbled Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ. In John 12, verse 32, Jesus says, And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all men to myself. The most compelling thing that we have is to point Jesus, to point people to Jesus and to his cross. He'll do the work of bringing people to himself. This is the way all effective evangelism has ever been done. Because he's the one who pulls together these storylines of feeling lost, of feeling confused, of feeling hard-hearted, of resolving all these places. And we come in here week in and week out and we say, do it again. Do it again. <laughs> G.K. Chesterton talks about the little child who looks up like a little, like a, who looks up at the sunrise in the morning. We look at the sunrise and we see it every morning coming up over and over and over again. But is it ever boring? And our little kids used to sit with us when, we were, when they were small and they'd be like, oh, daddy, do it again. Tell me again. Tell me one more time. Remind me of who I am. Tell me what you've done. Tell me how it changed. And in the end, that's the only hope that we really build this church out of. That's our hope, to find ourselves in Christ. Let's pray. And Lord Jesus, we pray that as we have these last few lines of song to sing, that they would be sung to you in as deep-throated and belly-filled praise as we can muster. 
Because this is the center. We have made it now to the very end, to what it's all about. And we found it in you. So we ask that you would draw us near to yourself and that you would lay a foundation in our hearts and in this church that we would never waver from this center. The Lord Jesus, if we ever walk away from this and become a church that's about anything else other than you and your work on the cross, that you will remove our lampstand. But while we're here, we pray that we would come and find you. Would you do that? Well, we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.